Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Gio and Joey show. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Jennifer Jill Schwerzer. Jennifer, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good. I'm doing even better because I get to talk to you guys and I like you. <laughs> Thank you very I, much, Joe. Better than I deserve. Amen. Jennifer, you were going to say? I probably don't. I probably don't agree with you about everything, but I agree with you about a lot of things. And I like you oh. even if I don't agree with you. So, and I know that just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean you're evil. Amen for that. And that's, that's important. That's something yes, that's updated these days. Dr. Jennifer is an author. She's a psychotherapist. She also is part of the Abide Network. And she is going to talk to us about trauma and how to handle that from a Christian perspective. And so that's very important because many people don't understand that there is a perspective that comes from Christianity that makes counseling worth it and not as something that has to go on forever. Because in Christ, in scripture, in Christian counseling, there is a definite aim. Joey, as we enter into this episode, tell me exactly why you wanted Dr. Jennifer Jill to be on the show today. I'm an undergrad right now and uh, studying psychology. And I think we all kind of acknowledge there's a mental health problem right, in America today. There's a lot of despair, a lot of depression, right? And also, we've never seen counseling rates as high as they are. And so I just kind of asked the question, like, obviously, I'm studying psychology. I'm not opposed to it. But I just kind of asked the question, some of my classmates, so like, is there something wrong with the approach? And like, the answers I was getting, it was almost like defensive. Like, no, no, we have to defend. Their, okay, but shouldn't we care that there's an end? Like, shouldn't we care that we're actually helping people? And if we're not, like, shouldn't we acknowledge that? And so I just wanted to have Dr. Schwer's hand so we can actually get to the heart of it and like, how is Christian therapy different from the world's therapy? And that's how we'll open it up. How is yeah. it different from the world's therapy? Yeah, I actually do a whole workshop on this called the Abide Coach Training. We have this network of both professionals and paraprofessional mental health coaches, and they have to go through a training that sort of grounds them in biblically grounded counseling and coaching. And so I address this in a big way. But to boil it down to one simple thing, with Christian therapy or coaching, whatever you want to call it, discipleship, there's a lot of overlap between those things. There's an outside source of power. So change occurs as a result of power coming from the outside. See, change is a power dilemma. And what you're trying to accomplish, hopefully, through therapy is change people feeling better, people having better relationships, people functioning better. And change is a power dilemma. If there's not power to change, then change doesn't happen. So the fundamental difference between secular and Christian change, or you could say therapy, is that in the secular mind, you have the power to do it yourself. So humanistic psychology says that all the therapist does is draws out the inner resources of the individual because they have the healing within them. They just haven't found it yet. But the Bible says, no, that we can't change apart from, at least in these really fundamental ways, apart from the power of God. So as a Christian therapist, I have the privilege of introducing them to the need to change, the techniques to change. And what I'm saying doesn't necessarily rule out techniques because techniques can be helpful but also there's prayer and there's introducing Jesus as the power, to, that the Holy Spirit has the power to change. 
I'm pretty sure you've gotten pushback on this idea of including space in it. What's been like the typical pushback in doing this? Well, there's two forms of pushbacks. The first is just your typical like belief that counseling is this magic formula that the specialists can do. And it just works in the person's life as the therapy is this very highly defined, discrete process that everybody with a higher degree in counseling knows how to do. And shazam, the person is better. So that's one kind of misconception. And of course, they would push back on anything that then deviated from that belief that questioned the efficacy of therapy because Everybody who's trained knows how to do this magical thing in the thinking of the world. The other pushback we get, though, is that there's no need for human intervention at all. And that's going to come more from the religious sector. If I'm not fighting off the dragon of stigma of mental health in religious circles, I'm fighting off the dragon of sort of the progressive secular view of mental health in secular circles, and there's dragons on both sides. So I think I am somewhere in the middle and I'm getting slaughtered. Mercy. There is a very well-known Twitter personality named Matt Walsh. I want to show you a tweet of his, but before that, you said something that piqued my interest. You mentioned that you get pushback from Christian circles. What is some of that pushback you get from Christian circles? It's very simple. You don't need people to help you. You need God. And and that's true, ultimately. Who would argue mm-hmm. with that? You look like a blasphemer if you deny that. But realistically, does God always directly help people? Or does the vast majority of the time, does he do it through other people? I mean, look at the whole discipleship mm-hmm. model in the yes. New Testament. It's people helping people. No Jesus. Mm-hmm. So if God was just, if everybody was an Enoch and God dealt with them fully directly, and I don't even believe Enoch was that way because he was raised by, you know, with faith and he had people in his life. We don't hear much about them. But if that was the case, then okay, I'll close up shop. But it is not the case. And there have been times in my Christian experience where people were telling me, you just need more prayer. You just need more God. And I was praying my head off and all about God. And I needed a person who had more experience in depression to come alongside me and say, this is what you need. And if I had had that, I would not have suffered as long as I did. And I would have been more useful to the kingdom of God. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I run Abide Network, because it's sending people to come alongside people and help them with things that they may not know and they may need. And a lot, and it's having an impact. That's so important. And you alluded to scripture and it's right. All throughout scripture, we're called to love our neighbor. Well, part of loving our neighbor is being there when they're going through traumatic things and through depression. And the Christian, just because he has come to Christ, isn't immune to feeling depressed, to having traumatic events take place in their life. Yeah. I was just going to say, I was wondering, would you say that some of the pushback is almost like cyclical? So in other words, the more that Right, kind of uh, the progressive secular worldview takes hold in psychology, the more religious people say, okay, well, we don't want that. So for instance, I, like I, w- I would be hard pressed to, to, to like, I, I don't know that I would adver- like, advertise for parents 
in California to send their kids to a licensed psychologist because if something happens in therapy and that kid gets the idea that say, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm a boy, but I was really a girl. And now, now that the idea has been introduced, if the parent decides, Hey, I'm against that, right? The state of California is going to come in and take their kids. So in other words, my, my opposition is obviously not to therapy in general. It's just, I think part of the opposition that I see in religious communities is a reaction to the excess of the secular side. Would you say that's accurate or? Yeah. And those things reinforce each other. And it takes a lot of maturity to look at the insanity that's going on in the world regarding psychology and counseling, like the insanity you just mentioned, and say, yeah, but there is such a thing as depression. And we do need some of what that big what you monolith you call the mental health industry has, or some of the things that they have may help some of our people. It takes a lot of maturity to admit that and not to build impenetrable walls between ourselves and the world. But I think that we have to admit that there are people in that industry that have studied human behavior that are not possessed of, they're not in a feeding frenzy of political activism. They're just really intent upon finding out how to help people. There's a lot of really good people in the field. And they've discovered some great stuff that would be a benefit to God's children that fully align with scripture. I'm an integrationist. I don't avoid scientific research. I think it can be mm -hmm. helpful. And so we have to be humble and admit it, it. One guy, Larry Crabb, he wrote years ago, he was a kind of a Christian integrationist counselor guy, and he called it spoiling the Egyptians where you go in and you find what's working and what's legitimate and what's helpful and what's biblical and you take it from the secular world and you use it. And that's exactly what I've done. Some of the Amen. cognitive stuff that's really helpful. We're very tools driven in Abide Network. So we are always collecting tools and some of the tools we've gotten have been straight out of the world, straight out of Egypt, but they're helpful. And the Bible says, examine everything and keep that which is good. So that is a good. We, we shouldn't exclude any, anything uh, just because it's not overtly religious. If it aligns with God's word, then we can use it. So let's jump into this Matt Walsh. Wait, wait, before you go into that, I want to mention something that's kind of close to my heart. My daughter works for a company called Frenzy, and they make social emotional learning products. And they're excellent. I was bullied in grade school. I know the pain of bullying and social emotional learning teaches kids self-regulation. It teaches them relational skills and it's anti-bullying. It's bullying preventive. And it's being said that it is the Trojan horse that is bringing progressive critical theory wokeness into our schools. And that may be true. There may be people that are using social emotional learning, but I have looked at the materials and they're excellent. And I wish all of our schools had them. So I think there has to be a way that we could keep our head on straight and say, this is good. This is helpful. And then know where the line is and not worry so much if woke people are using it, you know, because some of the stuff that they say and do is actually good and true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And too many times Christians add abandon religious symbols. For example, the rainbow. Well, that's actually God's symbol about his grace. And then also another one, 
up your alley, which is meditation. Meditation has gotten such a negative connotation. Now, there is a difference between proper Christian meditation and Eastern meditation that we're against, but we shouldn't abandon the entire concept simply because there are some spoiled rotten apples. Yeah, no. So, I, so I just had a question now, just making it more practical, because, like, obviously, I, I agree with everything you're saying that we shouldn't withdraw from good tools in the world, right? Like, <laughs> if Carl Jung had something good to say, like, we should, you know, listen to that, right? Put it out. But I guess the practical question I was have: so, say you're a parent, say there's a parent watch, a Christian parent watching in California, and there is that extra threat of, right? If this, so in other words. We could say like, oh yeah, there's good and there's bad, right? But if the threat is we're going to take your children, right? If you don't go along, if something happens. So like, how do we balance that? How do we make sure we, you know, we're engaging with the world, but also we're not opening ourselves up, particularly speaking to parents, like they're not opening themselves up to something that is going to ruin their family's life forever, right? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Children should have, they're under their parents' guidance they're not owned by their parents but their health and life is stewarded by parents and if the state tries to take that away i mean my my answer would be move to a different state i wouldn't like that situation at all i'd be terrified to send my kids to public school in california because of some of those laws and really all up the west coast um so i know that's a terrible cop-out is just move to a different state but i think you have to be vigilant about where that line is. You don't want to be, you don't want to have the bad look of looking like you're paranoid against good things. Like I think social emotional learning from what I've seen is very good and helpful and needed to be like this with it, to have this taboo about it has a bad look, I think. But I think you have to keep your discernment eyeglasses on, especially when children are concerned. And I think a really proactive way of dealing with that, Joey, is be really close to your kids. And make sure your kids can talk to you about anything. And then, so that requires some homework for the parents that they aren't just controlling the kid and the kid's environment, but they're communicating with the kid in a way that the kid tells them stuff. It makes a big difference in a lot of arenas when your kids will open up and talk to you. I had both of my kids share stuff with me that would have been disastrous if they hadn't, but we had a very good relationship and they could tell me anything. And it wouldn't cause problems. We communicated in our home. So I, I would get, I would offer that. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. My wife, who's a medical doctor, had that kind of relationship with her mother where she, you know, as in her college years, there were some things she would wrestle with and she was able to call home and talk to her mother and they'd walk it through and communicate that way. And that special bond is so important. So make sure you are close to your kids. And don't blow up if they do share something that you're not comfortable with and use it as an opportunity to bond with your kid. So at this moment, we're going to turn to the uh, thread of Matt Walsh. Let, I'll read a couple and then we'll discuss. Matt Walsh, famous DW uh, Daily Wire personality, said this. I'm not saying that all therapy is a waste of time, but I am saying that many of the worst and most dysfunctional people I've ever met have been doing, have been going to therapy for years, and there's no indication that it's done them any actual good whatsoever. Part of the problem is that many therapists and psychologists have a fundamental flawed view of humanity 
and what constitutes good and healthy thinking and behavior. They end up making every problem worse because they don't understand what the real problems even are. So I think that's a good point to stop and get your insight. What do you think of those first two tweets by uh, Matt Walsh? Matt Walsh. You know, I want to say this about Matt is I really loved his uh, film, What is a Woman? I thought it was super helpful. There's a couple moments in it that I wish he would have done something different, but for the most part, I thought it was a work of art. He comes off a little mean sometimes. I know that's part of his brand and that, you know, you get attention these days on social media by being shocking. I get that. But I think he's making a good point this time that there are a lot of people that are, like I said, the tale on the street is that therapy is this magic process that fixes everyone. Well, case in point, some of these people that have been going to therapy for years and they're still no better, obvious proof that there is no magical technique that fixes everyone. I would say this, and I think I said this on the tweet that I, I think I replied this, that I think if people have an organic brain disease and an ongoing battle that's much harder than what you or I would struggle with, like I've had depression, but I got past it and I'm fine now. And maybe you guys have struggled with certain things. But there are some people that have a real battle on their hands every day of their lives to keep their sanity. And that can be because of traumatic brain injury. It can be because of organic brain disease. It can be because of insane uh, circumstances that they're in. Maybe they're raising a disabled person or they have a, a home life cancer that's affecting them that they can't extricate. There's a number of different presentations where people need ongoing support. And I would never begrudge them that because going and talking to someone for an hour is not the end of the world. It's not hurting anyone. And as long as they're willing to pay the fee and the other person is compliant, it, nobody's committing a crime. So I think the person needs to have some right to determine whether they want to have therapy ongoingly or not. So I think to some degree, his comment is based on the idea that there is this magical process and it gets finished. Some people go to therapy because they just need the support for various reasons that maybe we don't understand. I'm not one of those people, but some people do. But I think he's right that a lot of what's going on in the world of psychology today is actually self-imposed. And what I would bring that to is the world of trauma. Because yeah. trauma, we're out of the closet, we're out of stigmatizing trauma, we understand the impact of trauma better than we ever have, but the world overcorrects, and the world has overcorrected to where there are entire cultures, mostly online, but everywhere, that actually inculcate trauma, that keep people in their trauma. And there are some basic misconceptions about trauma that as a knowledge of trauma has sort of trickled down into the mainstream, these misconceptions about trauma have developed and they're broadly embraced by people and they're wrong and they're doing positive harm. Yeah, before I want to get specifically into trauma, but let me read a couple of more of his tweets okay. and see where he takes us. Where he goes. He, yep. He says, the very fact that so many people need to be in therapy for years is a pretty good indication that a lot of therapy is blankety blank. If it's helping, then you shouldn't need to keep going back forever. Another problem with therapy is that it tends to feed the narcissistic impulse to talk incessantly about yourself, which is a real reason why it's so popular. 
the best advice anyone can give you for 90% of the problems you bring to a therapist is simply this, get over yourself and stop whining. But most therapists won't say that because their income depends on you not getting over yourself. What would you say to that? Because what he's trying to say is that there's an inherent bias for you to have the client keep coming back because that's how you make a living. So for me, I had so many people wanting therapy from the beginning or counseling from the beginning that it was never, I was never incentivized to try to hang on to clients. Mm -hmm. And I would say this, that there were two ways in which I was paid money, but also the improvement of the client is almost the greater payoff for me. And if they're coming back over and over and they're not improving, I find that aggravating and difficult and frustrating. So I am not in that category, but I'm not denying that there are some that are in that category that just try to hang on to their clients by keeping them sick. And I would say that that's true, not just for counselors and their clients, but for ministries, quote unquote, or chat pages on Facebook, all kinds of different subcultures where we're here because we've all been through something that we can all commiserate about. And if the person leading out in that thing, whatever it is, has a book to sell or a public presence to promote, I have seen this where people keep people sick so that they keep coming back for more. And it's very upsetting to me. But for me personally, people getting better was the bigger payoff, I think, than even the money was. But having said that, there were people that all they wanted to do is complain. And I'm talking in the past tense because I'm not taking new clients at this point. Mm -hmm. I've handed a lot of that off to the rest of Abide Network. But for many years, I was full every week. And so I did have clients and do to some degree still, because I still see some people who just seem to want to complain and rehearse the same things over and over and they pay for it. And that's the end of it. But it isn't as much, it isn't as rewarding to me as if they actually make progress. However, I don't believe in like rebuking them for it. I'm usually pretty gentle with people. I may at some point say, I don't think I can help you. Is this giving you what you need to be able to talk to me? But I probably wouldn't be real confrontational, but it wouldn't be because I was trying to keep them as a client. It would just be because I don't want to hurt their feelings. <laughs> but what would having, you I have gotten in trouble when I have riff, when I have not been, in their view, as compassionate as I should have been. What, I, yeah. what would you say to his accusation of, because it's a word we've been hearing more and more about narcissism and the prevalence of that in society. What would you say to him about that aspect of his tweets? Is narcissism more prevalent or is it just that we're not afraid to talk about it more? I think it is more prevalent. In fact, you can make quite a strong case for social media furthering the narcissism epidemic. And I haven't done a deep dive on that. But I think we're all as human beings on the narcissism spectrum somewhere. And that I think certain approaches, especially to social media, can deepen that. I would throw it back at him, though. Uh, another really good way to prop up your narcissism is have a TV show. And have your face out there all the time and people clicking and liking you and, and praising you. So there's a lot of different ways to get the narcissism feed. But I would agree with him that we love to talk about ourselves and a lot of people that come to therapy and talk incessantly about themselves have 
tried that with their friends and it hasn't gone well and they've lost friendships over it. And I actually think it's the more honorable practice to pay someone to listen to you. So it, it, there's, but I think you're right. I think you can just incessantly talk about yourself and reinforce your own existing negative thought patterns and, and destructive thought patterns. And it can be very difficult to break into that as a therapist. I actually train the coaches for Abide how to break into people's thought streams because mm -hmm. sometimes you'll just sit there for a whole hour and listen. So I train them. You put your hand up. If you're in the physical presence of the person, you can touch them lightly somewhere. Or if you're just on the phone with the person, you can go up, 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 up to try to get to, because you have to match their energy. They're going really yeah. fast because they're talking about their own life. And it's really hard to jump in when someone's ruminating on their own life. But if you do that little vocal thing, it can give you an in and you can start to dialogue because people get a lot more help from a more conversational kind of approach to therapy than they do to a monologue. However, I will say there have been times in my life when I just needed to monologue. When I was flooded, something really bad had happened. I needed to process it. I have a few times been a monologuer myself. And it, to have people that will listen to you and stay with you through that can be really helpful. But if it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, you got a problem. Okay, V has two more tweets, and then we're going to get into specific questions on trauma. And then I have a fun question about Jesus himself and how he would come across in one of these psychological exams that I've always wondered about. Since I have a professional here, I'd love to ask you. Here are his final two tweets in this thread. He says, if therapy will have any chance of helping you at all, the therapist would need to be very wise person with a keen understanding of the human condition, great moral insight, and enough life experience to serve as a competent guide. This therapist might exist somewhere out there. Very rare read. Most therapists are just as clueless. Mercy. Just as clueless as the people they're counseling. And then let me let you jump in here because then I'll read how you replied on your tweet. So go ahead. Okay. So I teach my Abide Network coaches that there's two aspects to counseling, coaching, discipleship, therapy, whatever you want to call it. I call it empathy and engagement. So you see empathy in the story of the Good Samaritan. You just, no questions asked. You don't try to challenge the person in any way. They're down for the count. They're bleeding out. You go and you bind up their wounds. That's empathy. And then challenging, there's several biblical examples of what are you doing here, Elijah? And a whole bunch of uh, Nathan going to David and giving him that metaphor of the little ewe lamb. So you have all these helpers jumping into people's lives and actually challenging them. So to me, good coaching, counseling is a blend of those two things. And that's what I teach. And I'm not the only one that teaches it. There's a really great integrationist named Tan. His last name is Tan. He's Asian. And he said the exact same thing in, in a textbook that I had for my doctoral studies. I was so excited to find it that good counseling and coaching are that combination where you come alongside the person, you really express empathy and you join them in their struggle and show them that you're joining them. But then you also ask leading questions, you get them to think, you, sh you point out patterns in their lives to help them start taking some responsibility 
for taking a different approach because they got themselves where they got themselves by making choices. You want them to make different choices. So you challenge them as well. So I teach that kind of two team, two horse approach. Okay. And I found it to be very effective. Yeah. So here's your. Now, tweet. if Matt Watts was a counselor, he would just do the challenge thing. That's all he yeah. would do. <laughs> here's a tweet you replied back to him. You said, however, for people with significant mental illness, such treatment resistant. I meant such as treatment resistant depression. Oh, okay. That's why we'll give you a, an opportunity to elaborate. Uh, bipolar, et cetera, to have ongoing sessions for the sake of social support is okay too. But yeah, the unculturated narcissism and dependency, the therapist keeping the client fragile, the illusion of treatment being some magical process. I get the silliness of all that, and I stand to earn serious money off of this. A tweet doesn't always give you a tone and voice. What do you mean there in your reply to Matt Walsh? Yeah, I, that I get that you, you can make a lot of money off keeping your clients sick so your business keeps rolling in. And I get that, and it's true. And there's a lot of garbage going on. I agree with them. However, I think that there are some cases where ongoing weekly even sessions can be helpful to people, especially people that have treatment resistant depression, bipolar, these organic brain diseases that they're just they're just fighting an uphill battle. We don't all have the same struggle to mm. keep our sanity. For me, it's fairly easy. Some would argue with that, but for me, I'm pretty stable. So are you guys. Yeah. But for some <laughs> I like people, to think so. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we're real. So let me ask you this. You deal with trauma. And so in our world, we're, we all attend church. We all uh, deep in our faith. But how do you help somebody, let's say, who's been hurt directly by the church? Let's say you hear all these scandals in the Catholic church, but our church is not immune. Let's say, for example, which I've seen, and I'm pretty sure you've dealt with, let's say a minister's wife who has been traumatized by her husband and has to balance between protecting her husband, protecting the church, protecting her kids. How do you deal with that? And how do you help somebody? Because the church can then trigger those emotions, even if they're attending a different church. Really good question. So all good trauma therapy involves facing triggers. Now, Having said that, let me distinguish between actual threats and triggers. So I talked a minute ago about misconceptions about trauma trickling down into the mainstream. One of the misconceptions is that treatment for tra trauma is avoiding triggers. The opposite is true. I remember when the light bulb went on in my head, I was looking at all of the most effective treatments for trauma, and they are in order prolonged exposure therapy. It's used extensively with people coming back from active combat, but others too. Also cognitive processing therapy, which is a form of CBT that uses the narrative through the events to expose mm. the person to trauma. And EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization, which also uses telling the story to expose them. So all of them, my point is, involve exposure to triggers. You can't, one of the just way marks one of the markers of trauma is avoidance of reminders of the event and all trauma therapy has you back up through that tendency 
and systematically in a careful manner and often with professional help in a structured manner facing those triggers instead of running from them. And what you do when you face them is you reshape your nervous system because the fact that your nervous system could get damaged by trauma proves that it can get undamaged. If it can change one way, it can change the other way. That's another misconception about trauma that's out there. And that is that once you're damaged, you're damaged forever and it can never be reversed. That's nonsense. Mm-hmm. And we have to some degree Bessel van der Kolk to thank for that. He's a big traumatologist guy and, and some of his stuff is really valuable and helpful. But he, his whole book is the body keeps the score like it's in you forever kind of thing. And I think that's a really incorrect and damaging assumption. So th- through gradual exposure to those triggers, a person who is very, very bothered by something that reminds them of a negative event can reshape their nervous system and not be bothered. Now, it takes a long time sometimes, and it takes effort, and it takes structure, and it takes help, but it can happen. So before I seal that one off, I want to say, but you have to distinguish between threats and triggers. So if the threat is, if I got assaulted by a tall guy with brown hair, then I'm going to avoid that tall guy with brown hair. He's a threat. But I'm not going to avoid all tall guys with brown hair. I might do that initially out of my trauma, but that's something that I can face safely. So the example you gave, Gio, is a pastor's wife who's been traumatized by her congregation. It might be like there's times I'm reading a book right now by Gary Thomas called When to Walk Away, and it's great. And I think he has tapped into something that I never saw before. But there are times to avoid certain people and certain things. And it's okay to do that as a Christian. You can't fix everything. And sometimes when you expose yourself to certain people, you are laying yourself open to more damage and you are the steward of your own health. So there are times when we have to avoid people. So that pastor's wife may need, depending on how how extreme the situation is, to say to her husband, I'm going to go to a different church, you know, God forbid. But I mean, terrible, not ideal, definitely, but it is what it is, you know. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you, you you said something earlier about facing the trauma and not letting it trigger you. How does that play out with the fact that you're never going to forget the trauma because the Lord doesn't zap you by removing those memories. And I'm talking about myself here in particular, because I lived 12 years away from the Lord and those memories are still there. The way I deal with it, is you've seen the movie, A Beautiful Mind. He just ignores the schizophrenic appearances. That's how I've taught myself. When those memories pop up, I just ignore them and eventually they go away. So how do you balance that? And how do you tell somebody that, look, the memories are not going to go away, but you can live with them? Yes. Well, if people are in their trauma and if they're not healed from their trauma yet, they're going to have those memories and it's going to totally sabotage them they're not going to be able to function but you're describing a situation where it'll pop up then you're able to dismiss it and that's great that means to me that looks like healing so normal memory processing means that whenever we have an upsetting experience like let's just take a fender bender you get in a car Mm -hmm. little car wreck you're not nobody died it's not terrible but it's upsetting you're going to think about that for the next couple days you're going to flash back on it you're going to review it in your mind. You're processing. You're processing. And that's good because you'll be a better driver 
in the future. But eventually, your brain will take the emotional charge out of the memory and it will file the memory where you can remember it without re-experiencing it. Okay. That process goes wrong with PTSD. Something goes wrong and the person doesn't remove the emotional charge and treatment mm. for PTSD assists that person in removing that emotional charge and getting that memory to process properly so that, yeah, you can remember I was sexually, I mean, I tell people every time I do workshops on trauma that I was sexually and physically assaulted by a group of girls in elementary school. I don't even feel the slightest little bit of nervousness or arousal at all when I say that because it's processed. I'm not living with the emotional overwhelm of it, but there was a time when I couldn't talk about it without feeling that. So that's normal memory processing. And so I would say that we could all go through that. And that's part of what therapy is for, is getting that to that place where you can talk about it, you can remember it, and it doesn't plague you anymore. And it sounds like you've gotten there. How do you deal with then, let's say, a woman who's been sexually assaulted? Because you said it was as a child, but let's say a grown woman who's been sexually assaulted. How does she get over that to be able to have intimacy with her husband? Well... It, it would be tough. I'll admit it. But it would only be impossible if triggers had to be avoided forever. It would only be impossible if the nervous system can never be reshaped after trauma. So if you believe that, that once you're damaged, you're damaged forever, then that woman would have to avoid all intimacy for the rest of her life because that would be a trigger. Not an actual threat because her husband isn't the abuser, mm. but a trigger. But if you believe that, yes, the nervous system can be reshaped after trauma and those things can be healed and, and we can overcome this tendency to avoid triggers, your nervous system can habituate to that stimuli. So what they have you do in like prolonged exposure therapy, and I studied this pretty extensively, you say got assaulted in a back alley somewhere. You won't go anywhere that even looks like that particular house that was in that back alley. If you see a house that looks like that, you don't. So what you do is you take a 50% level of trigger and you go and you stay in that trigger until your nervous system calls down, calms down. So mm. I might find a house that looks like the house that I was assaulted in front of. And instead of, oh, this reminds me of the house, I stand there with the therapist maybe next to me or on the phone or something. Mm -hmm. And I stand there and what happens, lo and behold, to the nervous system is it eventually says, okay, I guess this isn't dangerous. I guess you are okay. And lo and behold, I've developed a new association between that particular house and safety. And now I can be in front of that. I have retrained my nervous system. And you can do it either way. You can retrain it to feel safe in reasonably safe situations, or you can train your nervous system to feel unsafe everywhere by avoiding those situations. And you know, I have to admit, I, I'm not always brave enough to face my triggers. Yeah. You know, I'm honest yeah. with you. <laughs> but I know what's right, and I know what actually works. Something that came to my mind while you were talking. So in the physical, like with the physical body, right? If you break a bone, wh where that bone heals, will actually be stronger after the break, right, as a protective me mechanism. So would you say that that is the same post-trauma? So like 
if you heal properly, can you actually be more emotionally resilient? There is some evidence to that effect. A whole field of post-traumatic growth is quite remarkable. I actually stumbled on it because in the middle of my trauma studies, I was like, this is awful. People are damaged due to no fault of their own when they're vulnerable and they're ruined for life. How terrible. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't give it that much power. And so I looked at some of the passages and I said to myself, there has to be some science somewhere that talks about people actually growing through this trauma. And I found this whole field of post-traumatic growth. And people can become stronger as the result of what they go through. It's not just what they go through, though, because it can ruin them or it can make them stronger depending on what they do in response to it. And of you know, course, that, we let God work with them. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's science to back this up. Because I was just going to say, like, from my own life, right, some of the most resilient, most, like, spiritually healthy people I know have gone, have, have gone through some of the worst things, right? We think of just in the popular example, right? Victor Frankel, right? The things he went mm -hmm. through in the concentration camps, and yet he came out of the other side, right? Able to help people and help millions of people. So I just think, obviously, it's nice to see that there's science backing up this kind of practical reality. And it is science. It's not only biblical, but it's science. And, and if you talk about it, people will come at you and tell you that you're traumatizing the people that have been hurt. They'll accuse you of hurting people by saying and, and, that there's tra post-traumatic growth. When I listen to you and Joey talking, I always try to go back to scripture to see quickly in my head, is there an example of this? And honestly, it's Jesus Christ. Think about it. He's dying there on the cross. He's gone through something so traumatic, and yet he is still so in tune with his reality that he can say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And not only Christ, but us in humanity eventually will get to a point where we're in heaven for all eternity, having lived through sin and yet yeah. not being tempted to sin again because sin no longer holds that sway over us. So and that that's how my mind thinks. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a really, really important point, Gio, is that true healing is moral healing, moral mm -hmm. and spiritual healing. I dare say there may be some people whose trauma is so profound that they may just always have a little nervous system arousal every time they get around certain things. And they shouldn't beat themselves up over that. Don't mm -hmm. make an area of self-flagellation if you don't overcome trauma right away, even though you want to. Some of us are just going to have damage, but we don't have to be morally damaged. God came to save us. And mm -hmm. first and foremost, yes, saving us involves healing our nervous systems. But for some of us, it'll be when we get a new nervous system in the resurrection or mm -hmm. the translation. But mm -hmm. God can morally save us right now to where we do not use that trauma to then contribute to the sin problem on planet Earth, which is so often what happens with trauma. People will mm -hmm. turn to substances or they'll turn to revenge if it happens to be related to injustice, or in one way or another, they will act out sinfully on their trauma and they will make the worst, the earth a worse place to be. So God can heal us from that. And that's the ultimate healing that we're going for in biblically based mm -hmm. mental health work. Amen. To yeah. recap here, what I'm hearing you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
we're not going to get rid of the memories, but we can, proper therapy is going to remove the emotional hangups of those memories. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it, okay. good therapy can very often reduce the amount of emotionality, the flooding that comes from those memories. Okay, good. Awesome. No, this has been good because look, as a pastor, I'm not trained in your type of counseling, but I do have a minor in pastoral counseling, but it, they teach us to refer after six visits. But I've learned things here because I've been teaching some of this, but through my own experience, having overcome my 12 years in the world, I can separate that and continue to live a life for Christ. Just another thought that I had while we were talking is, so I, I've been reading through with my, the youth group of my church, the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you think of a lot of the story of these early Christians, right, who went through persecution, right? Very traumatic events. What you read about, ultimately, obviously, they didn't have counseling, right? They didn't have that option. <laughs> what you But I, I want to get a, give a caveat to that. They had a lot of long journeys on foot or horseback, and they did a lot of talking. So I think it was the equivalent of therapy sessions with their disciplers. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a lot of processing that went on of, mm -hmm. of a more organic sort, not in office, insurance pay, all that stuff, mm -hmm. but of an organic sort. And honestly, if our faith community is working properly, there will be a lot more spontaneous mentoring, counseling, and discipleship. And some of that will be along the lines of therapy. What I was thinking of is like what you're saying about how people can get through trauma, right? In other words, trauma doesn't have to be the end of the story, right? That doesn't have to mean, mm -hmm. oh, you're broken and you stay there. And like, yeah. I think we see that with the martyrs, right? In other words, they literally, all those traumatic things, right? I don't know to what level God removed pain, right, when they're tortured or if they just endured. And I think in some cases they probably did. And yet they were going to the lions or they were going to the stake and like they were singing and praying, right? So in other words, I think that goes to like, obviously, you you should utilize the tools that are available, right? Know what it's saying, you shouldn't. But also, it's like the gospel also kind of gives hope that there is there's hope in your trauma, right? So whether you're you're going to a mental health provider or whether maybe you don't have that opportunity, but you're fellowshipping at the church, like there is hope. And I think hope kind of is the key in a lot of ways because if you don't have hope, then you're just stuck. I think that's where you're stuck in the state. But as long as there's hope that you move past it, you can grow. Amen. Amen so Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians four, we are hard. I love this because it acknowledges the horror of persecution, which you're right, would be the most severe form of trauma. We are hard pressed on every side. Wasn't easy, but mm -hmm. not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair persecuted but not abandoned struck down but not destroyed therefore we do not lose heart so trauma has a certain amount of impact but it god says thus far and no further you won't let it destroy us and then it goes on to say this light affliction which is but for a moment works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory and that is katergazitai is the greek word there and it means bring down to the end point. So it's like this stuff that we go through does something for us in the long run. It's right there in scripture, the whole concept of post-traumatic growth. And by the way, I believe that the authors of the field of post-traumatic growth, Tadeshi and Calhoun are their names. And I believe that they are Christians. And the verse I turn to is 
in Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Two final questions before we let you go back to your dates. One is if Jesus would take like one of these Myers-Briggs type tests, how would he score? I mean, he's perfect, but I think some of these exams don't take grace into account. And so yeah. the notion of that, yes, I can feel one way, but I'll act different because of grace. How would Jesus score one of these exams and think? Well, the personality test that has the most empirical backing mm -hmm. is the big five, and they use the acronym OCEAN. So it's mm -hmm. openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism are the five mm -hmm. measures. Now, if you think about it, all of those are positive traits except mm -hmm. potentially neuroticism. Mm -hmm. And I think Jesus would score very high on all the first four and probably very low on neuroticism. And I think that it's possible to, like Peterson says, if you're naturally extroverted, try being quiet and just being with yourself for a while. Learn how to be adaptable. Learn how to shape your own personality. And whatever your natural bend is, make sure it doesn't come to control you. So I do believe there's some flexibility on personality traits. And that's really what we're teaching when we talk about sanctification is character mm -hmm. development. There may be some fixed personality traits, but that doesn't mean your character is always the same. If we start preaching that your character is the same, I'm sorry, but we have lost the plot. <laughs> yes. And last question, if people want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to reach out to you? We have your X handle or formerly Twitter handle here on the screen, but any other ways to contact you or the Abide Network? Yes, they can just go to abide.network. No extension, no .com, no .org, just abide.network. And they can fill out the intake form if they want to see a coach. They can look at, we have a lot going on. We have programs, all kinds of courses that we do. We have a certification process. We have a summit coming up at the end of next week for the weekend and just a lot of stuff going on. So check us out. We have a free Bible study every Friday night. Dr. Jennifer, thank you very much for this opportunity to have this discussion. I know many people enjoy it because I enjoyed it and Joey was geeked to have you on. Thank you for being on our show today. It was great. Thank you so much. It was fun. Made my day. Awesome. God bless.